everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on Patreon, like comments, Adherent Apologetics. Today, I'm joined by Adam Coleman, part of True ID Apologetics. Um, what's up, Adam? Welcome. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Hey, doing good, man. Glad to be here, bro. Glad to be here. You doing all right? Yeah, man, I'm doing great. It's been pretty Ooh, good. Man. It's exciting to see the NBA rolling back, and I know you like a little bit uh, of basketball, yeah. so it's been good to see that happening, even though I, my Sixers lost to the Cavs by like 25 points or whatever a couple nights ago. What in the world? Fun. Really? I didn't even know that, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big basketball fan, man. I, you know, Before I was in apologetics, like, I, I swore I was going to the NBA, and, and I had no justifiable reason to think so from a skills standpoint, but I just, <laughs> I just love basketball, so I just wanted to <laughs> – I realized that that my height and weight wasn't going to get me there, so I had to switch gears. And now I'm here, you know, doing the politics. Oh yeah, it's so my life story right there, today, for sure. Right, um, right. So just to start <laughs> off, we're going to be talking today about um, apologetics and the African American community, and all kinds of stuff along those lines. Uh, yeah. Before we get into that topic, Adam, could you talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, um, just things like that? Yeah, sure, man. So, uh, you know, again, I'm Adam Coleman. I'm the founder of True ID Apologetics Ministries. We're a nonprofit organization uh, centered around providing apologetics opportunities, uh, particularly within the African-American context. Um, uh, some years ago, uh, I had gotten into apologetics. You know, like most people, I'm reading C.S. Lewis and uh, you know, William Lane Craig and, uh, you know, John Lennox and a number of different folks. And I was just eating it up, man. And um, I came to realize that there were certain questions uh, that people had within the African-American context that uh, required some attention, you know. And so um, as I kind of wrestled with these questions myself and then these would be things like, you know, is is uh, Jesus based, a copycat of Horace, you know, which we hear around this time of year you know, quite a bit? Um, or is Christianity the white man's religion and, and things of that nature? Um, you know, is it somehow a, a contradiction to be a Christian and to be African-American or black or whatever. So I was, you know, just kind of interfacing with those different objections to being a Christian or, or Christianity proper. And I realized that, I, you know, there just need to be uh, some reasonable answers given to these kinds of things. And so uh, as I was kind of wrestling with it myself, I decided, hey, you know, why, why don't I, I jump in the game? You know, so I started the True ID podcast and that's kind of matured into you know, doing videos on YouTube. And actually, I, I do plan on re-releasing uh, the podcast or relaunching, I should say, the podcast in, in 2021. Uh, but that's essentially how I got into doing apologetics, man. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing the podcast come out again. Um, but I think it'd be helpful just before we get into like, uh, just like examples of like um, apologetics in the African-American community, like what does scene look like? Um, someone like me, I grew up in a town that was like you know, predominantly like white um, and I'm not in a large like African-American community. So I think for a lot of people, they wouldn't understand like, what's the scene like? How are the issues different? Cause even like we could get into like cultures and like by nations or subcultures and like regions or all these things, like we're all so different. So what does like the apologetic scene look like in African-American communities with like what you're familiar with? Sure, sure. So um, it's kind of like, um, I think that um, you can put it this way, movements against Christianity, they have stories, if you will, right? And so when we think about, for example, the new atheism, you know, we think about how you got the old school atheists, like your Bertrand Rutschels, your, your Nietzsche's and so on and so forth. Um, and then you have you know this kind of maturation into the new guys. You got uh, you know your Sam Harris's, and then of course you know he has you know Hitchens and Daniel Dinn, like you know you kind of you know, you have this movement um, really actually flowing back to at least the Enlightenment period, you know, of of atheism, you know, pushing against uh, Christian influence in the West. And I think most people are kind of familiar with with that story, if you will, of you know why apologetics is needed. Um, 
just in general. But when it comes to the African-American context, you know, there's a story as well. There's there's a, a stream of events that has led up to why apologetics is so necessary um, uh, in the African-American context today. And it's a slightly different story. Uh, when you look at going back to the transatlantic slave trade, uh, just kind of in a nutshell, and shout out to my man, Tim Stratton, by the way, of, of Freethinking Ministries. I've written some articles on this uh, on, on his website so people can check this out, but I'll just kind of give the condensed version. Uh, but essentially what you have is going back to the transatlantic slave trade, uh, you have a group of people who are taken away from their continent. They're, they're taken out of the context within which people typically develop a sense of identity. So uh, before you know the transatlantic slave trade, you have various different people groups, you know, whether it be the Fulani, the Awe, the, the Igbo, uh, the Yoruba, all these different African people groups. And then they're yoked up and brought over here to America where they're just black. Right. You know, they just put in this this one category of, of Negro. And again, these are previously individuals or groups who would have seen themselves as being distinct from one another. Uh, but you're you're taken out of your content. You're taken out of, you know, away from, you know, those who speak the same language or identify with one another based on whether it be markers on the skin or their you know former spirituality and things of that nature. And you have this uh, people group that are now reconstructing a um, a new identity. Right. Now, in the midst of that, there's some pros and cons, among which, um, make a long story short, you know, given that you have this ripping away of identity, you know, kind of forming this, this identity uh, crisis, if you will, um, stemming from that, nowadays you have individuals who feel like, okay, well, what we need to do is we need to reach back for that Africanness. We need to reach back towards those things that are um, aligned with our indigenous peoples, and we need to cast off anything that's European. And the problem is, is that Christianity is seen uh, among individuals, you know, who feel that way often as uh, being on the wrong side of that ledger. You know, Christianity is seen as being something that's a, a European import to Africa, if you will, as opposed to something that's in alignment with um, African heritage or, 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 or something along those lines. And so unfortunately, you have people casting off. Uh, that which they believe to be European, you know, i.e. Christianity, and uh, they're taking on other uh, ideologies, worldviews, and so forth that they believe to be in alignment with their um, their ethnic heritage. And so that's why you have the emergence of groups who are basically saying, hey, you know, you're not just an African-American, you're a Hebrew Israelite. Uh, that's that's one particular group that that uh, people may be familiar with. It's, it's or they may say that you're a Moor. You know, there's a group called the Moorish Science Temple. They'll say that you're a Moor and you need to reach back to your Moorish heritage. Or you may have another group. You know, where they say you're uh, from Kemet. Kemet is the indigenous word for Egypt. And they'll say we well, need to reach back to Egypt for your spirituality and and so on and so forth. And so, in a nutshell, you have these different groups who are all vying for the attention. Excuse me, of African people saying, "Hey, your identity is this." And in accordance with that, you need to you know, follow the path of this uh, understanding of spirituality or what have you. And then you got your atheism in the mix as well. People would just say, well, forget it all. You know, God wasn't there for us. And, you know, God, you know there's no good reason to exist for, uh, to think that he exists. And you know, we just need to get rid of that. And so you, you have like this kind of Afrocentric flavored uh, version of atheism that's also uh, present in the African-American context. And all of these different groups are presenting uh, objections to Christianity that, quite frankly, um, for much of the church history, it just hasn't been um, 
targeted or, or, or responded to in a way that I think is, is adequate. And so you have the flourishing of these these uh, false ideologies and so forth. But, you know, uh, now we've, we've got a number of folks out here who, who are stepping up to the plate to respond to these things. And so it's, it's an exciting time, you know, to engage in apologetics in, in the uh, uh, African-American context. Yeah. Shout out to my man, Nate Tudici, too, by the way. I see him in the chat. Definitely want to shout out to my man. Yeah. 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 Shout out to Nate, as always. It's so interesting, just the growth of apologetics recently, because I was just thinking about that. Like every week or a couple of days, there's a new apologetics channel or podcast or Twitter page yeah. or whatever, and it's growing so much. So it's really encouraging to see. So would you say like, uh, for example, a lot, some of my friends come from maybe like China, Vietnam, like Eastern Asia, and they come from like very atheistic backgrounds. And that's kind of like the big issue in terms of like apologetics yeah. and evangelizing to them is kind of breaking that barrier and showing them like religion isn't just like a thing of the past. So with like um, apologetic issues in like the African-American context, like what do you think is like the biggest issue or the bigger ones? Is it like kind of like people trying to connect back to their heritage, like before the transatlantic slave trade? Is there something else going on here? Good question. Good question. So I would say I, I would break it into um, three branches. OK, well, let's let's start with two, actually. So, you know, I want to shout out to, you know, Alvin Plantinga, a uh, big fan of his. And um, OG Alvin Plantinga. Yeah, the OG, man. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in War in the Christian Belief, you know, he has uh, he, he breaks down how you got these two broad. Um, and I'm, obviously, I'm not saying he's the only person who's done it, but this is how I stumbled upon it. But uh, he breaks down two forms of argumentation that you might see against uh, Christianity. You know, one would be like a de facto objection. And that would be, you know, to say that there's something factually incorrect about Christianity. You know, that's, you know, claims that Jesus didn't exist or God doesn't exist. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And these are all things to claim that there's something factually untrue about what Christianity is bringing to the table. So that's your de facto objections. And then you have your uh, de jure objection or de jure. I always mispronounce it. But, you know, de jure objections uh, would be to say that there's some uh, quality about Christianity that, uh would justify rejecting it, but it not necessarily on the basis of whether it's factual or not. And so planning it goes the direction of saying, you know, that people are uh, lobbying against us, that Christianity is irrational. And, you know, that's grounds to you know, reject Christianity. And then, of course, it goes down the path with, you know, reforming epistemology to, to demonstrate how that's not the case. Uh, I would say that another form of the jure objections that we find in the African-American context is this notion of what I call ethnic betrayal. You know, is this is this notion that to engage in Christianity is to, in a sense, sin against your people, if you will, or against your heritage, if you will, right? Is that you you become a turncoat, you know, against uh, Africans and, and African culture, and uh, that's a very real thing. So when people you know make claims like is Christianity the white man's religion, or or that Christianity is the white man's religion, and that it's somehow you, you're a, a coon if you're a Christian, or you know things of that nature, that's really what they're saying. They're saying that you've turned your back on something. Um, on yeah, that Africanness, and that's you know warrant enough to um, to reject Christianity. So we see objections to Christianity from those two streams. Okay, so um, you do have so again. So let, let's start with the de jure. Uh, so when it comes to answering questions about uh, Christianity supposedly being you know the white man's religion, what we find ourselves doing is providing uh, historical. Uh, context and, and just uh, education for people in terms of the 2000 or so years uh, history of Christianity on the continent of Africa with about 1400 of that coming before the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, we talk to people about the various figures and if we want, we can get into some of these, but we talk about, we, we talk about the contributions of African peoples to church history, to Christian history and so forth. Um, I've got whole lectures 
on the misconception that Christianity was just beaten into the slaves and, and that's kind of the end of the story. I mean, there's this very dynamic picture, historical picture that we can uh, read through slave narratives and, and the records that we have available and to see that it wasn't just this matter of uh, African enslaved persons being beaten into Christianity, but there was much more going on there um, that needs to be taken into account. Um, such that nobody should feel ashamed, you know, uh, of being an African American and being a Christian today. But rather, we can stand on the shoulders of those who did endure uh, chattel slavery, and in the midst of that, we're still able to discern the truth of Christianity. Uh, so, you know, in those kinds of ways, we can deal with, um, you know, th those uh, objections there from the jury standpoint. But then also, um, you know, we do get some of the same types of objections that you would find in any other context, you know, like God, you know, the notion that God doesn't exist. And so we find ourselves, uh, you know, uh, giving defenses along those lines, particularly in regard to this issue of slavery. I, I think a large chunk of the object objectives that we get revolve around this, this, uh, you know, the problem of suffering or just various shades of the problem of evil and the problem of suffering or leveraging, um, you know, this uh, supposed moral dilemma of slavery against Christianity. So we run into all those kinds of things. Shout out to Warrior Woman in the chat. You know, see her in there as well. MJ Jackson as well. Glad these, these guys showed up. And Benjamin, who says, um, this guy, Adam, has some pretty amazing shirts. I'm wondering if people uh, can buy them. <laughs> yeah, shout out to my man, Ben. Yeah, Ben's my guy, man. Yes, they can buy them. And I, I can maybe put the uh, the link in the chat. I'm, I'm He's a better marketer of my merch than I am. So yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sure Nate yeah. or ben, someone will do that in like two seconds. Um, yeah. Something so interesting I'd love for you to talk about for a second is just like the rich roots of um, Christianity in Africa. Sure. Like I was just reading, I've been reading Tom Holland's work, um, I think it's called the Dominion or for exactly it's called Dominion. And he's mm -hmm. talking about like the history of Christianity and like how it impacted the world. And it's interesting is one of the first schisms to ever happen among the church happens in Carthage, which is like modern day Tunisia, which is in Africa. And it's talking about like how some people would like burn their Bibles when they were persecuted and like people are like, what do we do with these people who call themselves Christians and they want to come back to the church and they like burn their Bibles yeah. and kind of deny Christ. And it's like, what do we do with this? Um so that's just something random and interesting but like what do you think oh, about sure. like, the african roots of christianity sure well i mean you know i've got to give a shout out to my guy vince bantu uh, um you know dr vince bantu excuse me who's written a whole you know book on this stuff i think it's called a multitude of all peoples i'm not sure if i have it behind me or not uh probably do have it in, in here somewhere uh but um you know uh this is something that we find ourselves talking a lot about the african um heritage you know if, if you will uh, as far as Christianity is concerned. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be in uh, in another, you know, um, uh, on another YouTube channel. My guy, a BCAP apologist, and about at uh, nine o'clock tonight, he's actually in the chat right now as well. So we'll be, we'll be chopping some of that up as well. Um, you know, definitely want to sub, sub to his channel, him and MJ. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, when it comes to um, th this notion that somehow African peoples were latecomers uh, in, the, in the Christian story, I mean, that's just demonstrably false. I mean, quite frankly, we could you know, start with the very pages of scripture. We can go to Acts uh, chapter 13, where we're talking about Simon, the, you know, the Niger or Niger, you know, depending on how you want to pronounce that, uh, who, you know, seems to be a person of African descent, you know, who is involved in the establishing of the church in, in Antioch and commissioning, you know, the apostle Paul to go forth on, on his mission trip. We can start there in scripture. Now, obviously, uh, with many of the groups that I'm dealing with, they don't really have a high regard for scripture. And so, you know, I typically begin with uh, the historical data, just, just straight up. And so uh, before you even get out of the first century, you already have uh, the presence of, of uh, Christianity in Africa in places like, uh, like you mentioned, like, like Carthage, for example, uh, North Africa, or um, as well in Alexandria, um, 
Alexandria, Egypt. As a matter of fact, that you know, the first uh, seminary anywhere on the planet was in Alexandria, Egypt, the, the catechetical school of Alexandria. Now, you have a strong uh, uh, presence of Christianity there that they, uh, through their oral history, trace back to the Apostle Mark, who they say established the church there was uh, was martyred in Alexandria, Egypt, and, and you know, the Coptics trace their uh, spiritual lineage, if you will, in terms of Christianity, uh, back to uh, the Apostle Mark. So already, you know, going back to the first century, you have um, evidence of Christianity being present on the continent of Africa. But moving on from there, I mean, I mean, goodness knows. I mean, quite frankly, I could, I could fill up your whole show talking about the various ways that it flourished. But um, you got to think about, you know, and again, North Africa, you have Christianity showing up there before even, you know, the, the, the second or third century. Uh, you know, there's a, a African theologian by the name of Tertullian, who, who was considered to be the father of Latin theology. He was a um, uh, seemed to be an indigenous African, you know, based upon the works of, of, of uh, David Wilhite, he establishes that case. Uh, so you have him making contributions to uh, the church at, a, at, a, at an early point. So, for example, like right now, uh, this, this notion of Christianity being, uh, you know, started at the Council of Nicaea, you know, that's like a big thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is clearly false. Uh, but one thing that they did actually interestingly true is that the uh, Nicene or you could say Nicene Constantinople and Creed um, in the development of it, they actually relied upon uh, Tertullian's works, you know, from about a century or so before the Council of Nicaea. And again, you're dealing with a North African uh, theologian there. As a matter of fact, the, the term Trinity uh, is attributed to um, uh, to Tertullian, as a matter of fact. Um, as, as he was the one that kind of coined that term in Latin, it would be uh, Trinitas. And so you have Christianity uh, spurring up there in, in North Africa, um, you know, before even the, you know, uh, the close of the second century. Uh, you have Ethiopia uh, uh, as being uh, declared a Christian nation. Uh, between Ethiopia and Armenia, they, they debate about which one was the first, but Ethiopia going back to like the fourth century is declared a Christian, uh, the Christian nation under, under King Azana. You have uh, uh, ancient Nubia, which is what we call modern day Sudan. Uh, became a Christian nation in about 450 AD and remained a Christian nation up until about the 14th century. So that's a, a, a Christian nation on the continent of Africa for about a thousand years, all of that coming before the transatlantic slave trade. And even recently, you know, we uh, shout out to, again, to Vince Bantu, there's, we've uh, made some discoveries, or he, he's made some discoveries, I don't want to take credit, but, you know, he's, he's made some discoveries about, uh, you know, um, where we have textual evidence of there being Christian communities in West Africa actually prior to the transatlantic slave trade in, in Mali. And so I just actually, uh, the last video that I did on my channel, I talked about that, how we have evidence of Christianity in Mali. And so, you know, all along, I mean, it's not just that uh, Africans are just kind of along for the ride in Christianity, but you have uh, Africans making serious contributions. Uh, St. Augustine, you know, is obviously well known as regards being one of the greatest thinkers of all time. He was a North African uh, theologian um, and based upon his mother's name, uh, Monica, they deduced that he was likely of Berber descent, and the Berbers were an indigenous African tribe. And so you have, uh, you know, somebody like Saint Augustine, who you know clearly is is a giant, you know, in the Christian faith. You know, writing uh, City of God and, and Confessions, and you know, a whole slew of other works. I mean, you know, that guy was was a giant. But I could go on and on about Cyprian, uh, Athanasius, who was a, a hero at um, at the Council of Nicaea, Bishop Alexander. We could talk about how monasticism, Christian monasticism is birthed out of the life of um, Abba Anthony, you know, and then kind of, uh, you know, takes root. We talk about Abba Moses. We could talk about, uh, you know, a whole slew of folks, Pacomius, Shenouda of a tree. <laughs> there are all sorts of uh, other giants of, of African descent um, in, in the Christian story, particularly in its, in its earlier years. And so when we think about uh, Christianity today, today, 
um, it's it's really unfortunate that we, you know, most of us don't realize that we owe um, the the uh, development of the Christian movement, if you will. You know, and God God has used. I'll say put it this way: God has used Africa and Africans to move forward. Uh, the, the, his kingdom on the earth. And, and that's something that I think we need to really reclaim um, as a matter of apologetics and dealing with these groups who would say otherwise. Mm, yeah, for sure. Uh, so what we're going to do now is we're going to dive into some just specific examples of like apologetics in the African American context. So I'll leave this to you, Adam, wherever you want to take it. And I do want to say at the end, we'll open up if there's any questions, super chats, things like that. We'll open the last, save the last 10, 15 minutes or so for those, if there's any, uh, but we'll turn to you, Adam, and just kind of go through an example and we can kind of just walk through it. So it's up to you. Sure, sure, sure. So, um, you know, thinking about some of the, the common um, arguments that we use for God's existence, right? Uh, thinking about uh, the moral argument, for example. Okay, that's that's a pretty common one. You know, if God doesn't exist, the moral values and uh, objective moral values and duties don't exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. And that's kind of the pretty common, uh, you know, William, William Lane Craig-esque uh, rendering of it anyway. Um, you know, we, we throw that around a lot, but what we find is that um, in the African-American context, it helps to contextualize uh, that argument. So actually, I've actually done, um, I've got a couple of different versions of it you know, that I found to be, you know, um, pretty effective in, in pinpointing, or I'll just say kind of leveraging cultural concerns combined with the logic of the, of the, uh, the moral argument and providing people something to chew on that I think it has, I've seen be effective in the past. So what I can do is just kind of share my screen yeah. and, uh, you know, we'll go from there. Uh, let's see here. Share my screen. Awesome. Okay. Oops. Man, you made a whole 79 slide presentation just for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, let me, let me, uh, Get this right here. Boom! There we go. Okay, can can, uh, can they see that or? Um, yeah, it should be up. Yeah, everyone can see it. So. Okay, good, good. And so, you know, one of the main objections that we run into against Christianity is is that this uh, issue of there being professing Christians uh, who were involved in the transatlantic slave trade, uh, you know, to some extent, you know, the, the church, if you will as in the, the people involved in the transatlantic slave trade, or some people will just kind of say, well, if, if God is real, then why didn't he save our people from slavery? You know, all these different things are, are leveraged against Christianity. Um, so what I try to do is draw out or um, I guess kind of, you know, gain some common ground, if you will, uh, by taking note that I agree that child slavery on the basis of race is, is evil. It's just that I think that if God doesn't exist, then we don't have you know, grounds to make such a claim. or So I kind of leverage that or package that into what I call the modified moral argument, uh, the MMA. I'm, I'm a mixed martial arts fan, or at least I have been anyway, kind of chilled out with a little bit. But the MMA, uh, it kind of goes like this. If God does not exist, there are no moral facts concerning objective evil or wrongness. Now, uh, step number two, there are moral facts about some things like chattel slavery on the basis of race being objectively evil or wrong. And then I'll take it to the conclusion uh, therefore, uh, God exists. Now, that second premise, um, I I put it in a red because I typically will use that um, th that clause like parenthetically, you know, because what I, what I really want to do is I want to take the moral argument and just bring it right on somebody's you know front door and say, hey, look, I agree with you, you know, that chattel slavery was a problem, and here's how it fits into this. Uh, uh, what we can see as being something that actually points toward the existence of God rather rather than uh, in the opposite direction. And so, you know, typically um, people, they may be 
somewhat unsure about you know either of the premises, right? You know, they may be unsure about well, you know, is it really the case that um, you know there, there really are some facts about um, you know morality or whatever? But in the African American context, it's just taken as being axiomatic that slavery was wrong, right? And so. I've already got a head start on my argument because you already agree with me on the central component of of the argument. You agree, you know what I'm saying, that there's there are such things as objectively evil. So let's say if you're dealing with somebody um, who's a uh, perfect example, you know, the George Floyd situation that unfortunately happened a couple months ago. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, that was messed up. That was, you know, uh, Derek Chauvin should not have done that. You know, he ought not to have done that as a matter of just he was just dead wrong. Well, if you believe that, if you believe that it's a, just a matter of fact that he was objectively wrong, he did something that was objectively evil, right? Then, again, I've, I've got a head start on my argument. So then I can just kind of walk you through uh, the steps here. If you believe there are these moral facts, you know, that's just a fact of the matter that this or that is objectively evil or wrong, then, you know, we can just kind of run through the argument to see how that actually, uh, that intuition um, actually points to uh, the existence of God. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll use this one and actually I have another version of it. Uh, the human value argument. Uh, this is um, shout out to Angus Manuj. Actually, I kind of got this from from watching him. Um, but you know, obviously, uh, you know, again, the transatlantic slave trade weighs heavily in a lot of these discussions about uh, does God exist in the African American context. And so, um, one of the the key aspects of that is the assumption that um, or the intuit that, that deep rooted intuition that people have uh, value that human beings have objective value. Uh, now, if it was the case that um, either human beings did not have value, objectively speaking, then there really wouldn't be much of an argument. You, we can do what we want with them, right? Um, or if it's the case that um, human value is subjective, you know, then again, you know, I, I, sometimes I'll use the example between, say, the, the slave trader and the slave. Neither one of them was objectively right about the value of the slave. If the, the value of the slave, uh, he may they may have seen themselves. The slave person may have seen themselves as being uh, worth more than than money. Obviously, it's something that's that's not to be bought. But if the slave trader disagreed and felt that they were worth X amount, then you know neither one of them was objectively right or wrong about that. If if human value is subjective, uh, but I'm pretty sure I think most of us understand anyway. I think that we share an intuition. I'll put it that way: that human beings do have some sort of base level of objective value. And if that's the case, then that kind of brings me to the argument. If God does not exist, then objective human value does not exist. Objective human value does exist. Therefore, God exists. You know, and so usually when I'm proving the first premise, I'll kind of walk through that. Like, what does it look like in a materialist uh, perspective? Like, where, where do you derive value from? You know, if we're just, uh, you know, uh, matter in motion, if you will, um, how is that imbued uh, with value just you know, in and of itself? Right. Um, matter is not it's not a, a feature, excuse me, value, uh, rather moral value is not a feature of the natural world. It's not like you can uh, put uh, moral value like in this you know, bottle of water right here and, and, and scan it for moral value or my left hand or something like that. You can't you know, find how many ounces of moral value I have in my, my pinky or something. You know, it's just not that kind of a thing. It's something that is uh, outside of the physical realm. And so you know, we kind of walk through some of those um, you know, pieces of evidence for, for um uh, for that first premise there. And then again, you know, if somebody really believes that the African slave persons had value, or sometimes I'll just ask, like, you know, do you believe that African slave persons uh, had value that should have been uh, treated and they should have been treated with dignity? You know, if the person says yes, then they've already given me my second premise, you know, object, you know human value does exist. And if they say no, then I, my question is, well, what are we upset about? <laughs> if, if those enslaved persons didn't have value anyway, what are you mad for, right? 
so you know we, we kind of can work you know work through it uh through it like that so i, I know i've run through quite a bit thus far i mean did, did anybody have any questions thus far or do you want to keep going with an i have a um, third example but bring up is um as we keep on going thank you for the very detailed explanation is uh this idea of moral relativism like do you think it's like less common in the african-american culture more common more than common like the same like because you brought up brought a lot up about like the moral argument like objective truth more realism and such sure sure good question good question well i think that it's it's non-true isn't that the notion that um, morality is relative is is non-traditional. I put it that way, and the reason why I frame it that way is because um, you know throughout you know we're just talking about African Americans, but you know throughout our history we've tended to have a fixed idea that you know that you know as most people do actually that there is a moral right and wrong to things like there's a fixed you know point of morality. However, uh, amongst I would say like millennials and and I guess I, I get them mixed up between which one is younger, millennials and Gen Z or whatever. But you know the, the newbies <laughs> in in the community, uh, this notion of there being more flexibility from a moral standpoint, that seems to be you know gaining some traction. You know, um, and so at least on the surface, people will. Um, you know, give at least give some sort of lip service or, or you know, to the notion that you have uh, that there may be some uh, relatively relativity to morality. But if you press people hard enough, you know, and and kind of just maybe kind of have you know think a little bit, then I think that most people you can still work them back to the realization that uh, there is an objective uh, uh, morality. So, for example, you really can't make sense of the whole Black Lives Matter movement. You know, if it's not the case that. It's objectively true that black, black lives matter. You know, if, if, if actually, matter of fact, I wrote a uh, wrote an article called "Black Lives Don't Matter," because if um, naturalism is true, then then no lives matter, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I've got a whole argue, article kind of working through that. But um, I think that when you you know, when you kind of bring people to a rubber meets the road scenario, um, even those who initially say that oh you know, they think morality is relative, they they can eventually understand that you know what actually no there is something more concrete there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it was something really interesting that came up is the, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Phil Papers, like philosophers survey that they did, like maybe like 10, 15 years ago. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Are you talking about as far as uh, who's a naturalist and who's not? Or yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like, yeah. Are you an atheist? Are you a theist? Are you a Platonist? Are you an yeah. mm-hmm. all Basically everything. And it was interesting. I think in that survey, only about like 15 or 20 percent of uh, philosophers were theists, like believed in God, and about 70 percent were atheists, I believe. But if you go into that same survey, like I think it's like 55 percent of them are moral realists, which is mm, really yeah. interesting because it would seem like yeah. more people – have an issue with like the idea of attaching moral values to God in terms of like non-Christian philosophers and the idea that these actually, there actually are like objective uh, morals. So. Well, yeah, I think it's because, um, uh, well, one reason is that when you're dealing with this issue of morality, which is actually why uh, the study of morality is one of my favorite areas of philosophy to study, mm-hmm. is that it just gets it gets you right in your life. You know what I'm saying? It's, just, it's your every day. You, you encounter moral decisions all the time. And the reality is, is that we all have these moral intuitions that any solid theory of morality has to account for. Right. And so I'm certainly more rational to think that, um, you know, murdering my family or something like that, you know, for no reason at all is is wrong. I'm certainly more rational to think that that's wrong, uh, just given just the gut intuition that I have than than the opposite. Right. And so I think that, you know, people who reflect on these things. I think there's a big piece to do with them. It's just the fact that we have these moral intu- intuitions that have to be taken into account. And any um, 
you know, uh, you know, non-realist account of morality uh, just just doesn't seem to, to be able to do that. Mm, definitely. Uh, do you want to go into maybe like one more kind of like common issue that you've seen in like the, the African-American context in terms of apologetics? Sure. Yeah. Well, actually, um, I'm I'm kind of excited about this next one. Now I'll try to breeze through it. I, I've got a whole presentation that I did just on um, that on Tim Stratton's channel about a week or so ago. Uh, but this is actually an argument that I've uh, developed myself, and it's kind of in the beginning stages, but I'm, I'm floating it out there. Uh, what I call the the scan. So I'm, I'm biting off Alvin Planning a little bit. He's got the E. E-A-A-N, e evolutionary argument against naturalism. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've got the self-concept argument against naturalism. And so just to kind of define terms real quick, uh, self-concept is notion of, you know, who, who am I? When you ask yourself that question, uh, who am I? So for me, I, I'm a social worker, I'm a father, I'm an African-American, I'm an American. You know, we have all these different pieces to our self-concept. You're saying you're our identity, if you will, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I think about that, my argument is that if naturalism is true, the self-concept cannot be rationally maintained. Uh, and then premise two, the self-concept can be rationally maintained. Uh, therefore, the conclusion is that naturalism is false. And now when I, I say rationally maintained, what I'm referring to is, uh, let, let's say for example, I wake up in the morning to brush my teeth and I look in the mirror and I see that I've got dark skin. You know what I'm saying like, now just based upon perception, uh, you know, my eye, you know, how the light strikes my eyes and what I see, I can see I've got dark skin, but that in and of itself doesn't tell me that people who have my complexion have this historical tie to, you know, slavery and Dr. Martin Luther King and all these other aspects of what it means to be me, right? And that, that aspect of my, my identity, you know, those are things that are learned, right? Um, and so I would argue that um, if it is the case that we don't have uh, the faculties for rationality, then truths like that about myself would not be attainable to me, you know. And so I argue that you know whether it be um, what we call qualia or whether it be uh, mental causation, you know, these aspects, you know, these building blocks of rationality, I, I argue, uh, don't fit well within a naturalist paradigm. And given that that's the case, um, I, I then can't sustain a rationally sustain rather. Uh, my self-concept because those uh, components to rationality are necessary for me to know things about myself. And so like, for example, mental causation, I just mentioned it a second ago, mental causation has to do with the idea that thoughts that are the, the, the content of propositions can cause, you know, other thoughts. So if I say um, Socrates is a mortal, um, Socrates is a man, you know, um, all men are mortals. Therefore, Socrates is immortal. In order to get from step one to the conclusion, you know, you've got to know something about or you've got to be able to process something about the content there and have it have some bearing on how you get to the, the conclusion, you know, if you will. And so I'm saying that that type of process is impossible if it is the case that essentially, you know, the mind is just a, a matter of me of atoms bouncing around you know, in my brain. If that's really at bottom, you know, what, what the mind is, then you know, I'm arguing that that content driven uh, process of, of coming to conclusions is uh, is isn't possible, you know. So, um, yeah, that's just one example. But, you know, in terms of being able to rationally maintain our self-concept, I'm saying that on naturalism, you don't have the necessary resources like accounting for qualia, mental causation, uh, intentionality, the aboutness of our thoughts, you know, things of that nature to really account for it. And therefore, um, I would say that naturalism is false. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting argument. I think there are like atheist philosophers who would go down the route of just denying that 
their own existence in a sense kind of with this argument because if you follow like a very strict like naturalistic determinism like all the way through that's kind of what you get one thing i'm curious about uh with your argument is like is this almost like kind of like a version of an argument from consciousness where like you know you talk about like mm. oil's done a lot of work on this and he's like just through intro introspection you can like just introspect yourself and kind of realize like you're somebody um like you have this like identity um, so to speak. So is this like kind of like in the line of like maybe like blending together an evolutionary argument against naturalism and like an argument from consciousness? Like where do you think uh, it follows with like good. philosophical arguments? Good, good. Yes. Yeah. So it's definitely derivative from uh, the argument from reason. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Victor Reppert. I've got his book, um, you yeah. know, C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. And, and so what it, his um, on the Black Hole Companion of Natural Theology. I just started reading his entry today. Good, good, good. See, there we go, oh, man. Look at that. Reason. Cool, cool. Yeah, exactly. So, so Victor Reppert is going to argue, um, kind of again. I keep using this example, but something like intentionality, uh, qualia, mental causation, uh, the laws of logic. Like he's going to say that these things aren't um, are, are. Well, I think he takes an inductive approach, but you know, he'll say that these things are, aren't likely on a naturalistic paradigm, or that naturalism can't account for these things. I'll just put it that way, right? And so, for me, I'm kind of like one step removed from that, where I'm saying. I'm not. I'm not just saying that these things aren't um, don't fit within a naturalistic paradigm, but there are fruits of those aspects of our of our conscious life that we don't have access to those fruits, if you will. One of which being this notion of self self concept. So it's definitely uh, this argument is definitely a derivative of of the argument from reason for whatever, for whatever reason you know uh, pun intended. Uh, I've really been uh, you know digging in on the contingency argument. And uh, the argument from reason over the last you know six or so months, and this is kind of flowing out of that. Um, and really, what it is is that, um, like I talked about, with this idea about identity and kind of in the African American context, is just a, a big deal in terms of accounting for that identity. Um, I kind of wanted to develop an argument that pointed people towards the, the truth of the biblical worldview, harnessing something that they're really concerned about. You know, and so this is like an intersection between one of my favorite arguments, the argument from reason. And the contextual concerns that I that I've um, you know been running into. So I'm saying that for at least that you know the atheists or the naturalists, I'm arguing that hey, you know, you believe that somehow Christianity is antithetical, you know, to our Africanness, or if you will. But to even account for that, you know, your your worldview just it just doesn't have the necessary resources to account for the, for your identity claims, if you will. And so yeah, there's so much more to it that I can I can unpack. I'm, I know we want to get to some questions, but um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about this one in, in so much as it it fuses the argument from reason with stuff that we run into in urban apologetics. Yeah, lots of fun stuff here. Uh, we do have about 15, 20 minutes left before we wrap things up here. Um, there are no questions at the moment, so if there's questions, feel free to put them in the live chat. But if you want to unpack this argument more, because it's a really interesting argument, it's definitely unique, feel free to, um, or if you want to go to something else, wherever you want to go. Great, yeah, I can just share a couple things. Um, I'll try to be as concise as I can. Um, so let me, actually, I need to bring it up myself so I can <laughs> know what I'm saying here. Um, did you want me to put it back on the screen or should I just yeah, well, whatever works best for you? Um, well, I'll, I'll just talk about it. You know, so um, when I initially started out uh, with this argument, I, I kind of had it structured um, in such a way that it just highlighted our identity claims. Like, can we rationally affirm our identity claims? So, so again, I gave the example, like if I'm looking in the mirror and I see my skin. That doesn't tell me the, the history of my people. Right. That's something that I need to glean from you know study and, and learning and so on and so forth. And so that's kind of where I, I started. I'm like, you know what, actually, if we don't have this access to uh, rationality, then we can't rationally affirm our identity claims. But then as I began to study on what identity is and what the self-concept is, I began discovering that there's this, this dynamic 
robust um, literature, you know, on the self, right? And there were so many other thing, other things that I can, you know, kind of pull together and uh, co-opt, if you will, you know, for my argument. So uh, when we think about the self, there's like two main theories. You know, one of them is identity theory, and then the other one is social identity theory. And then let's show identity theory is like the psychologist's approach to understanding, you know, who we are, kind of just on the inside. And they, they're really focused on things like, you know, what role that we take on in any given social situation and things of that nature. Whereas as uh, social identity focuses on focuses on what category or what groups that we as, that we align ourselves with. You know, so whereas um, the psychologist might say that, you know, I develop my identity around things like being a uh, being a father and that role that I have or whatever, you know, where the, the sociologist would say, well, no, actually, you know, the, the loci of our identity revolves around the groups that we that we align ourselves with. You know, now just you know, just think about this. Right. If um, if everything that you believe is really just a product of the atoms bouncing around your brain. Right. Mm -hmm. Then there's really no reason to think that from moment to moment, our identities should, should cohere with the social context that we find ourselves in. And so, for example, if I've got a daughter, which I do, you know, um, and you know, a couple of years ago, can't, I was can't do this now because we're in, in, in COVID uh, restrictions. But, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, we had her in ballet. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, my role towards her uh, is that I'm her father. Now, let's say that I show up to pick her up from ballet. If the thoughts of my brain, again, are just kind of atoms bouncing around, there's no reason that my, you know, the, the belief that um, I'm her father couldn't somehow just be like, well, I'm the father of this kid over here. So some random kid I don't know. And so now I end up taking somebody's child is not mine or something like that. Right. You know, like our beliefs have everything to do with how we behave and how we engage one another. You know, so the idea of, of maintaining some sort of uh, coherent identity concept that aligns with the world as it actually is, is dependent upon, uh, uh, I would say, you know, a robust account of consciousness that, that just doesn't work on a naturalistic paradigm. Or I could say, what if I say that uh, I'm uh, I'm an African-American and uh, <laughs> I don't mean to be offensive here, but you know, I just think this is funny, but there's this uh, Dave Chappelle skit where he's like a blind uh, white supremacist and he's like, he can't see. And so he's going to like, you know, KKK rallies and things of that nature, you know, like, what, you know, who's to say that I could, you know, even though I'm an African-American, like, I, I could just, you know, my mental faculties could just burp into existence, this notion that I'm, you know, white supremacist. And so I'm going to these different, you know, KKK rallies and things like that. I mean, that probably wouldn't work out too well for me. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is that if our self-concept can't be rationally sustained, those things should be happening all the time. We should be we should be living lives that are incoherent from an identity standpoint. So, you know, that's uh, I see we have some questions coming in. So maybe I'll pause there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, we'll go to a little bit of questions here to wrap things up here for about 10 more minutes. Uh, the first thing we have is a super chat from Sehi Fredo. said, Rita, thank you so much for super chat. Appreciate the support as always. Um, he says, idealism versus naturalism. How is identity determined? Uh, before we give you a chance to respond, out, I'll just hash this out very briefly. Like idealism is the idea that everything basically stems from the mind, um, God's mind in a sense, in my very rough definition of it. And I'm sure Adam can den denounce it better than I do. And then naturalism is an idea that, you know, there is all there is is within some sort of like causally closed system. Um, there's no God, gods, anything like that. Um, so what do you think, Adam? Yeah. So, you know, identity, excuse me, idealism. I mean, the idea is that, you know, mind is fundamental. I'm saying in some sense or another. Now you could, um, and 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 not only fundamental, but it's 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 the everything, if you will. I'm saying so. You're talking about with two polar opposites, you know. Whereas naturalism, I mean, you can be a naturalist and maybe say uh, take like an emergentist approach, you know, where you think that you know natural um, you know, phenomena or or 
constitu constituents of the natural world can uh, bring about uh, some form of, of mind, you know, in the same way that, you know, a lot of times I'll use the example of, uh, you know, H2O brings about wetness, if you will, you know, it kind of supervenes on it. You know, so that might be those two things there. But in terms of how identity is determined or how, um, I, I try to be more accurate, but in terms of how it's developed, um, that question is independent of what, you know, you're going to find in the literature about idealism or naturalism, because sociologists and psychologists, they're just answering different questions. You know, they're not asking the questions necessarily about idealism, naturalism. They're looking at, you know, human behavior. They're saying that when you um, ask somebody, who are you, you know, the answer that they give has, you know, it, it comes from something. It comes from a set of experiences. It comes from a set of relationships. It comes from social encounters. And they want to investigate those social encounters. And so the psychologist would say, for example, um, if you uh, are in third grade and you encounter a kid who's being beat up on and you come to their aid, you know, you may develop the concept within yourself that you, in any given situation, that you're an advocate, you know, that's your role in social context. You know, you're the kind of person who advocates for other people and that's your role. And so you're going to take that in any social situation or the sociologist is going to say that if you're in fifth grade and you uh, are placed in, um, you know, uh, advanced you know, math or, you know, whatever you could be advanced in, in fifth grade, you know, you might develop the idea that you belong to a group of people who are advanced in terms of their intellect. So you're going to say, I'm an, I'm, I'm a smart person. Yeah, I, I fit in that category. Right. So, you know, um, that's what they're going to be looking at in terms, that's what these different disciplines are going to be looking at in terms of how identity is formed. You know, how do you, as you go into a social situation or you go into some sort of situation, how do you derive uh, concepts about about who you are and how do you change that? You know, because some might say that if you meet or if you're in a social situation where you and somebody else you know, fill the same role, there may be some competition there and how you fare in that competition may determine your self-esteem and so on and so forth. I mean, it's very it's very uh, in-depth in terms of the literature, but um, I, maybe I misunderstand this question. But how identity is determined is, you know, the people who are answering those questions are dealing with a separate set of questions than idealism or, or naturalism. Mm -hmm. um, now, shout out to, you know, uh, Inspiring Philosophy, my man, uh, you know, over there. I mean, he's, he's really big on idealism. And I don't think that idealism um, is, you know, of necessity uh, somehow um, opposed to Christianity. I think that there are, you know, ways to understand idealism that fit well, you know, with the, within a Christian worldview. I myself, I'm not necessarily an idealist. I understand why somebody could be, but I just I have to do further research on it to, uh, to understand where, where I'm going with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idealism, dualism, physicalism debate, it's a lot of fun. Um, a lot of stuff yeah. in the literature, like just like literally everything in philosophy. There's just so much. Um, sure. The PA show, the empathetic atheist says, um, what are the differentiating factors of social trinitarianism and social trinitarianism? I don't know. He's a capital D for the first one. I'm not sure what's exactly going on here. Do you have an idea, Adam? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what he means by that because he said, "What's the differentiation of social trinitarianism, capital T, and social trinitarianism, lowercase t?" Now, I don't know if if what he means by that is if he's talking about the relationship between, say, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as in, like, is the Son, um, you know, eternally, um, you know, coming forth from the Father or something like that? If he's, is he saying this, is there that eternal dynamic to the Trinity? I'm not exactly sure what he's asking there. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but I guess that's how it interprets. Like, I guess the social dynamic of the Trinity, maybe is that if that's what he's saying, then maybe I could kind of yeah. go at that. Um, but he said, he said he said a relative identity, relative identity Trinitarianism. I guess he's what he means for the second one. Second one. 
Uh, you got me beat on that. I can't really say that I've I've looked into that. I'm not sure. Um, relative identity trinitarianism. I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. So in terms of my engagement with the subject of identities, had to do with more so on the human level. Uh, from a trinitarian standpoint, I mean, we can say. Um, I mean, I guess you had to get into logos theology and what you believe about you know uh, some of the early church fathers and and you know them saying that you know God eternally flows forth from I mean, excuse me, the the word or you know Jesus eternally flows forth from the Father and kind of what weight you put on that. But um, personally, I, I don't if that's what he's getting at. I don't really have a take on that per se. It, it doesn't necessarily intersect with uh, you know my argument for my identity. But you know, hey, he might just you know be uh, too rich for my blood on that question. I'm not really sure. Yeah, pretty smart man, you know. So uh, who yeah. knows? Uh, thank you for your question, though. Um, one more question here, also from the EA show. It says, on the moral argument, why should you not uh, murder your family, so to speak? Well, yeah. So I think that you know, um, well, let's, let's let's start from from two places. Number one, I think that it's I'm within my rational grounds to to come to the conclusion that it's wrong to murder my family. You know, I think I have this deep rooted intuition. You know that something like that um, is is indeed wrong. Now the question is, what is what accounts for that deep intuition? You know, I'm going to say that I don't think that there's a naturalistic paradigm that can account for it. However, on the biblical worldview, I think I've got more than enough, uh, you know, of a framework to account for the deep intuition that I have, and I would say that most people probably share. Quite frankly, I, th I think you know most of us will probably agree that murdering people for no good reason is wrong. Uh, but in terms of why it's wrong. Um, I think the theist is going to be able to give a better answer than, than not. So from my perspective, um, I do think that our moral intuitions put us in touch with a moral reality that at its foundation, um, you find God as being the essence, you know, or the very um, what it means to be good. You know what I'm saying now, uh, in other words, there's an identity relation between God and what our terms of like good are pointing to, if you will. OK, gets into some moral semantics there. Uh, but in so much as our, our intuitions uh, put us in contact with in contact with uh, God's moral nature, you know, we have a sense that can guide our interactions with one another and, and with him, with, the, with our environment and so forth. You know, and so I think that the theists, you know, given that God has created us, you know, uh, in his image and has given us these capacities to uh, ascertain, you know, what is right and wrong that allows us for us to have the kind of communal interactions that we have and the fellowship with him. I think that we, we can uh, paint a picture as to why um, um, we can know that there is a such thing as right, rightness, wrongness, good, evil, and how it fits into our human experience from a te theological standpoint. Mm. Uh, we'll have time for one more question here. It's a super chat from Sigi Fredo. Um, Thank you so much for your super chat, Sigi Fredo. Really appreciate your support again. Um, he says everyone has um, net value. I don't know if he means inherent value um, or just like every person has value. I think you could interpret different ways. Um, may God not exist. I was, I was thinking necessary value because if, you know, you say human value is necessary, but isn't God necessary, then maybe you could go that route. It'd be an interesting argument. But I'm not exactly sure what he's saying here, but do you have, have any thoughts, Adam? Yeah, I mean, so, um, yeah, as far as net value, I, I don't know what he means. I, but I guess if, if he does, if he is referring to like inherent value, mm -hmm. um, again, I, I agree. I do believe that everybody has uh, inherent value. But now, you know, being a good philosopher, we're going to have to talk about what do we mean by inherent? Like, do we mean inherent as in something that is innately derived from, you know, that substance or entity? Or are we going to talk about something that is just, uh, I'll just say, um, is uh, inextricable, you know, from the entity that we're talking about. I think that, you know, when I think about inherent, excuse me, inherent uh, value, you know, of a person's or 
quite frankly, anything other than God, I think that these are contingent, inherent yet contingent, if you will. You know I'm saying I think that God is the basis of moral value, and in so much as He's created uh, human beings and endowed them, you know, with value, um, you've done something. You're out of step with reality, if you will, if you um, engage with human beings in a way that doesn't reflect that moral value. I'm not sure if that helps or not. But yeah, I, I do think that, in other words, I think everything every, everything that is valuable is contingent upon, uh, ultimately contingent upon God, which kind of leads me back to the contingency argument. But, you know, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. The EA shows, says you guys are dope. I'd love to debate both of you, and I cool. love you guys already. So awesome, man. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, it's very, very kind. Um, so, Adam, we talked a lot a lot of different things. It was so much fun. Is there any kind of, like, last thoughts um, you want to bring up before we just start to wrap things up here? Well, no, man. I just I think that um, I'm, I'm excited about what, what God is doing right now. I mean, I'm, I'm not the only one out here. I mean, there are several other apologists you know, in our context that are doing great work. BK Apologists, Damon Richardson, Eric Mason, Matt Jackson, um, my man, Vocab Malone, Faithful to God. I mean, there's a whole slew of us out here. Michelle Turner. You know, it's been a bunch of people that I'm forgetting right now. And I'm going to pay for it later. Uh, but, you know, we, we got a lot of great people out here, man. And um, I think that um, what I would encourage people to do is I think that apologetics is um, at its best when we are intentional about serving people. And I think that as we're getting into, um, you know, further into studying and making all kinds of different defenses for God's existence and, and the biblical worldview, I would encourage people to kind of keep an eye out for how they can, you know, add something new to the table by just like, you know, taking what we've got and bringing it to their context. You know, um, I think that there is a, a, a budding diversity uh, within the apologetics world that that needs to continue to bud. You know, we, we can't all be um, on the same uh, uh, or kind of doing the same thing. There's a diversity of needs out there and we need to kind of keep our eyes open, our head on a swivel to make sure that we're taking this brain that God has given us and serving the people that he's put us before to serve. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, great stuff, Adam. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, there's links. If you're watching via YouTube, Nate, just put like all of Adam's life in the live chat. So you can follow yeah, right. there. Um, if you listen via podcast, there's going to be links in the show notes for you guys. You can follow Adam, uh, True ID Apologetics. You're going to be on with BK Apologist at nine, if I'm right. Um, yeah, yeah, nine o'clock. Yep, yep. Definitely want to hop over there. BK Apologist, man. Shout out to him. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to D New. D News in the building. Shout out to D New. That's what's up. New? Yes. And Nate, yeah. uh, thank you for always for sharing a bunch of links. And then I'll be on the Empathetic Atheist Show at 8 p.m. So if you have no plans for tonight, you got all kinds of plans for the next like two or three hours. Yeah, so. how about it? That's all right. It'll be a lot oh, of fun. Is, is, that, is that the EA show, the Empathetic Atheist? Or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking it was EA Sports. I'm like, oh, man, cool. I'm a big video <laughs> game guy. So we got like EA Sports in the building some kind <laughs> of way. I was like. In the game, man. In that's the, like, in the game. Uh, yeah. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> It's like you play Madden and talk about like atheism and religion. <laughs> right. Well, actually, I do have a uh, gaming channel that uh, I just uh, just kind of getting off the ground, so people can check out True ID Gaming as well. T R U I D Gaming. I'm also on uh, I'm on Twitch and I've got my YouTube channel where I do where I, I do exactly that. I play video games and we just talk about uh, apologetics. Nice. That's where it's at, man. That's yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. At. Awesome. Well, um, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. I encourage everyone follow Adam. Um, on your way out, really appreciate you staying tuned with us. If you enjoyed hearing Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe. If you're new here, leave a like or a review. Um, and if you enjoy the show, you can support us on Patreon.com. So if you're hearing Apologetics right now, we're a little over 80% funded. So your support, a dollar or two to help us reach full funding, always appreciated. But thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Adam, for joining me. So much great stuff. Absolutely, bro. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Hope you have a good night and 